If you're keeping a list of CEOs who could be doing a better job of communicating with investors, we've got one more name you can add. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Tim Byers. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Fully caffeinated, ready to go. Likewise, we are going to get to Zoom in just a little bit. We have to start with Snap, because Snap is having ripple effects hitting shareholders way beyond just the Snap shareholders. Uh, for those who missed it, CEO Evan Spiegel warned that the company is going to miss its own quarterly targets for profits and revenue. Shares of Snap down 40% today, and the ripple effects I referred to, it's basically any company that relies on digital advertising of some form or another. Shares of Meta Platforms, Roku, Pinterest, Alphabet, Trade Desk, just to name a few, down in the wake of you know this this market environment where nobody gets the benefit of the doubt and everyone is assuming the worst all the time. Right. Yeah. When your stock is down forty percent, you can no longer be called Snap. You we have to call you Snapped. You've you've been Snapped now. Um, it's terrible, Chris. I mean, so the it's really frustrating to be honest how this came to pass. So Evan Spiegel got asked about basically the state of the business at the J.P. Morgan conference and said, yeah, our guidance is going to come in down below the low end of our guidance that we issued a month ago. It was probably the biggest shrug emoji of an announcement of bad news that I think I've seen in a while. It was really weird. It was almost like a Hollywood moment where we have to freeze the frame and say, like, wait a minute, did that just happen? And then, of course, to follow this up, Snap issued an 8K, and an 8K filing is an SEC filing that is required when the company discloses something that could be material to an investor. And in this case, it is material that Snap investors thought they were going to see a certain amount of growth. Now, they're not going to see that. And so, they put out this 8K filing that essentially repeated what Spiegel said during the conference. And then, there really wasn't any more color commentary on this, Chris. So, let's talk about what we know. The two things we do know, when Snap announced guidance on April 21st, so literally a month ago, 20 to 25% year-over-year growth, that's what to expect in the coming quarter. And zero to break even to $50 million of EBITDA. And now, so, so we know two things. It's going to be less than 20%. And Snap, I, if I have my numbers right here, has never grown less than 17%. So they may set a new record for low growth um, with this coming quarter. And they're going to have another EBITDA loss. They have had, you know, for, for those who don't know what that means, EBITDA's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Chris, they've piled up tons of losses in that category for years. They were finally going to turn the corner here, and now they're not. So I would say Snap's response, sort of casually putting that out there, is more concerning than the actual numbers. Spiegel's also getting some flack for 
laying a decent chunk of the blame at the feet of the macroeconomic environment. Yes. And I, I think uh, a lot of analysts and a lot of investors rightfully are sort of looking at the business that Snap is in and saying, it really shouldn't be affecting you to the tune of 40%. And certainly not in a month. So there are two possible answers there. Either things have deteriorated at a, a massive scale, which would explain some of the carnage that's hitting other stocks. So either things from a macro perspective, if let's say Spiegel's right, things have you know deteriorated at a breathtaking pace. Or, and I'm not intending this to be you know, snappy at snap, or their internal controls and forecasting are horrible. I mean, it's it's really either one of the two, Chris. And I think what's more likely is it that things have deteriorated so dramatically that everybody should expect you know whiplash in their own forecasts. Like Meta will cut back guidance, Alphabet will cut back guidance, the Trade Desk will cut back guidance. I think it's presumptive to say that they will. It feels much more likely to me, Chris, that Snap made some assumptions in its business, and now they've had to go back and say, "Well, wait a minute, we were wrong about those assumptions." So this feels more like forecasting error than it does draconian macroeconomic downturn. I don't discount that there's probably some deterioration, but this much deterioration that feels extraordinary and I'm having a hard time swallowing it. Last thing before we move on, uh one of my favorite comments I saw today that I think cannot be emphasized enough for all investors, regardless of the stocks in your portfolio, and it was an analyst at JP Morgan Chase writing about Snap saying, you know, the guidance is less emblematic of the macro environment than the messages that we have received in the banking industry. And the note went on to highlight, like, look, they're going to do like $6 billion in revenue this year. And the quote that stuck with me was, this analyst wrote, that said, this is not a market that is spending much time on nuance. And I just, you know, immediately, uh, in my mind, gave that a standing ovation because that, if if listeners take nothing else away from what's been happening over the past couple of months at least, please please take that into account. That this is absolutely not a market spending much time. I would say spending no time on nuance. It's just hundred uh, percent. Yeah, his hysteria. Can can we just say that at least for the moment? Hysteria is the new normal. Like it, it is, it is, and that you know, for long-term investors like us, that can create opportunity. It's that can one create of, a lot know, of opportunities. Yeah, it, that can create a really lot of can. opportunities. I um, mean, but before you you pivot here, the quick thing is: so is it a long-term opportunity for Snap? I would just say for right now, Snap sort of left it. For us to kind of shrug and say, like, I don't know what this means for you. And so I don't think this creates an immediate buying opportunity for Snap, even though it might. They just left too much unsaid, Chris. But it might be, I think you got to wait for the report. 
Absolutely. No, and and that will be a conference call worth listening to. Uh, let's move on to Zoom video communications because first quarter results were good. They had yep. upbeat guidance for the second quarter. Yep. The stock is in positive territory and as you and I were talking earlier, uh, this was one of those reports and guidance for Zoom that you just think, gosh, if this were just an ordinary day in an ordinary market, uh, this stock would probably be up a lot more. I think it'd be up at least 20%. I mean, I really do. If it if the Nasdaq were not down, you know, over 3% as we're talking right now, Chris, if there wasn't so much hysteria in the market, Zoom would be up far more than it is. So let's just hit the numbers quickly on a adjusted earnings basis, a dollar 3 in earnings per share for the first quarter of fiscal 2023. The final estimate was 87 cents, so they blew that out the water. The revenue estimate was much closer, um, you know, 1.073 uh, eight was, and that's a little bit higher than the average estimate for uh, for analysts. So they beat marginally, but their revenue guidance was terrific. I mean, they they came in with you know guidance that was right in what the market wants, and again with higher guidance in terms of their earnings per share, uh, calling for in the next quarter 90 to 92 cents and 370 to 377 for the full year. That's material up, almost 4% better than the average estimate here. The fact is that Zoom is doing incredibly well here, Chris. And I think a couple of things, two, two major points. Zoom right now is on track, even if you get rid of all the artificial sweetener, all of the stock-based compensation, and you account for all of their investments and capital expenditures and just building out the business, they're still on track to generate a billion dollars, a billion with a B, of free cash flow just this year. Um, in this quarter, they were able to buy back about $133 million in stock. That is funded entirely, Chris, through free cash flow. I cannot stress enough how healthy this business is. And not only they could have put a lot more. I mean, Zoom has a mountain of cash. The fact that they only bought back 133 million dollars worth of shares using their existing free cash flow to do it, and sort of stay conservative, stay thoughtful, and reinvest in the business. This is one of those companies that sort of got tarred as a pandemic play, and has quietly gone about its business. Of just executing, just executing brilliantly, Chris. And let me give you one other thought on on this one. It's it's a relatively cheap stock. It's likely to end the day at a free cash flow yield that's over four percent. To put that in perspective, that's a the kind of yield you expect for a company whose growth is slowing, <laughs> not persistently growing. And doing incredibly well with an unbelievably sturdy balance sheet, Chris. This one is, I think, emblematic of the hysteria in the market. We just don't want to give Zoom enough credit. Over the past year, the stock is down seventy percent, and you can look at that and say. And I think this goes to the the narrative that you rightly pointed out that well, this is just a pandemic stock, and I think you can look back at where Zoom was a year ago, 
where the market was a year ago and say, okay, yeah, this thing got overheated, this got out ahead of itself. Um, maybe some investors who were looking at, wow, it's another quarter of triple-digit revenue growth, thought that was going to go on forever, right? which uh, is a mistake to, th- yep. to have thought that for anyone who did. But now, you know, to your point, um, it's it's certainly a much more attractively priced stock. We talked earlier about the opportunities that get created in an environment like this, and I think you and I are in agreement. Snap is not there because we both uh, right. want to hear what they have to say yep. when they come out with their actual earnings. Now that we've seen this with Zoom priced where the stock is. For people who haven't ever bought shares, do you look at what's happening today and think, this is a pretty nice point to get in? I mean, it feels like that to me, Chris. I think this is a very, if you could call it cheap, I think you could fairly call it cheap. I'll just call it reasonably priced. I think this is a very reasonably priced stock, but there's going to be some people who are going to look at the top line and say, this thing is only growing 12% year over year, because that was the quarterly growth, it was up 12%. And they're going to see that, and they're going to say, "No way! That's a slow growth business. It's in decline." I think you're crazy if that's where you're at here. Let me give you a couple of more stats here on the customer metrics here, Chris. So their largest customers, 198,900 enterprise customers, that was up 24% uh, over uh, year over year. Uh, 2,916 customers contributing more than 100,000 in uh, recurring revenue. That was up 46%. So, what does this add up to? Trailing 12 months, dollar, uh, net dollar expansion rate of 123%. So, spending 23% more. So, they have a large cohort of big customers that are growing their spend on Zoom consistently. Are we surprised that it's generating this much cash flow? I'm not. I don't think we should be. This stock is underpriced compared to its position, its earnings power, its cash flow, and its importance to customers who just keep voting with their dollars about how they see this as part of their toolkit for doing business in a post-pandemic world, Chris. Really appreciate the time, Tim. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Am I the only one who thinks inflation is not looking very transitory these days? For a couple of ways that investors like us can fight inflation, here's certified financial planner Robert Brokamp. year for investors. Inflation is up, and our portfolios are down. The consumer price index in April rose 8.3% year-over-year, and as of last Friday, the S&P 500 is down 18% so far in 2022, and the Nasdaq is down 27%. This is a problem, because you invest today in order to pay for something in the future. And you have to make sure that your portfolio can cover those future higher prices. Joining us to discuss four ways your portfolio can fight inflation is Motley Fool contributor and former financial planner and lawyer, Dan Kaplinger. This week, we're going to talk about two inflation fighters, and then Dan's going to join us again next week to talk about two more. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm glad to be here, bro. It's been a while since I've been on this show, but it's always fun to join you. 
Well, we called you in here because we know that you're a smart guy and you can talk about all kinds of different things, including some things that a lot of people really didn't pay attention to for many years because, frankly, they're boring investments. So, we're going to start with this number one inflation fighter. It's inflation adjusted investments offered by none other than Uncle Sam. I know. Whoever would have thought that the US Treasury would come out with a set of investments that were among the hottest, most in demand products right now? But with inflation high, a lot of folks are discovering these for the first time. There's two different types of these securities. One is the Series I savings bond, better known as I bonds. The other is the cumbersome Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, better known as TIPS. And both of these are bond investments. And so it's important to understand this plays a different role in your portfolio than stocks. It's not going to replace stocks, it's for the portion of your allocation in your portfolio that you've got to fixed income outside of the stock market. But these particular bonds do something that most bonds don't. They adjust their value based on changes in the consumer price index. And because they are issued by the US Treasury, they're backed by the full faith in government, uh, full faith and credit of the federal government. So you don't have to worry about default risk. Worst case, the US Treasury can always generate more money to pay these off. And so what you're able to do is see returns that are based, they keep up with inflation. So when you see inflation pop up, you'll see the returns on these bonds go up as well. And that's what's getting so much attention, bro. Because if you buy an I bond right now, since the beginning of May, you will get an interest rate of more than 9.6%. Yes, not a typo, not 0.96, 9.6% on an annualized basis on that I-bond. But before you kind of think, okay, boy, I should just replace my whole stock portfolio with these guys, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. One is interest rate on the I-bond changes every six months. And it's based on what happens to inflation over that ensuing six-month period. And so the reason that we're getting 9.6% for this six-month period is because inflation, the consumer price index, went up by that amount on an annualized basis. The other thing to keep in mind about these I-bonds is that there's a limit to how much you can buy. Generally, each taxpayer, each social security number can get tied to $10,000 worth of I-bond purchases in any given calendar year. So that means that, you know, if you're married, then you can buy $10,000 worth. Your spouse can buy $10,000 worth. But it's not something that if you've got a million-dollar portfolio, you're going to be able to get everything into these I-bonds and get that guaranteed 9.6% rate. Another thing to keep in mind, I-bonds, you have to hold on to them for at least a year. You can hold on to them. They continue to generate interest for up to 30 years. You don't have to hold them that long. If you cash them in before five years goes by, then you'll pay an er basically an early withdrawal penalty of three months worth of interest. But a lot of folks are getting into these just because you're seeing declines in the stock market. You're seeing declines in a lot of bond mutual funds and ETFs. And so these offer a way to get yourself sort of a guaranteed positive return because they can't lose value. 
and they're easy to get through treasurydirect.gov. In addition, you may be able to, if you have a tax refund coming, you can direct that tax refund into the purchase of I-bonds up to $5,000 in additional I-bonds. So definitely something to keep an eye on. With I-bonds, you pretty much have to get them directly from Uncle Sam. Tips are a different story. Tips are uh, a way you can get them directly from Uncle Sam, but you can buy them in other ways, right? That's right. Tips are a different animal. It's important to understand the difference because there, there are some things that I-bonds have that tips don't and vice versa. Tips are also auctioned through the U.S. government. You can get them on the Treasury Direct website on a relatively infrequent basis. I think that they auction off new tips on a once per month. But you can also buy them through your broker. Now, that's not the case with iBonds. But with tips, you can buy them through your broker. And you can choose from a variety of maturity dates, anything from just a few months out to as long as 30 years from now. The thing that you have to worry about when you buy tips on the open market is that many of them are trading at premium prices compared to what they will pay out at the end of their, uh, when they mature, at the date of their maturity. So that's the safer side of your portfolio. Let's take a look at the riskier side of your portfolio and some of the things you can invest in that will give you a better chance of beating inflation. And looking at inflation fighter number two, we're going to talk about dividend stocks. Um, And just so over the long term, stocks in general, are a good inflation hedge. Over many historical periods, stocks have outpaced inflation by 6 to 7% a year on average. And it kind of makes sense, right? Because inflation is the result of companies charging higher prices. Uh, and you could benefit if you own shares in those companies. Um, but the short term is a different story. And we've seen that this year. However, I think it's important for you to remember that the return from the stock market comes really from two sources price movements and dividends. And while prices are down this year, dividends have kept on growing. According to Standard Poor's, U.S. companies have grown their dividends by 9.5% in the first quarter of this year. And I think people don't really often think too much about dividends or kind of an afterthought, especially nowadays. The yield on the S&P 500 is 1.37%. The last time yields were this low were the early 2000s. Um, Plus, not every stock pays a dividend. But dividends can really be a resilient way to fight inflation. In a recent MarketWatch article, uh, Mark Holbert wrote, that based on the average of all rolling 12-month periods since 1940, dividends per share growth has outpaced inflation by 2.4 percentage points per year. Plus, companies are really reluctant to cut dividends. They, they kind of represent a long-term promise, and investors do not respond favorably to dividend cuts. Um, so, Let's say you like this idea of buying some dividend payers. Of course, you can go out and buy individual companies that pay a dividend. But you also can get an instantly diversified portfolio through ETFs that track a dividend-oriented index. Um, There are several of these out there. Most are offered by the big-name brokerage firms and mutual fund companies. Um, But it's important to understand the criteria for a company to be included in the ETF. So Some of these ETFs focus on companies that have higher yields today. Others only on companies whose yields actually may not be particularly high, but the dividend is growing at an above-average rate. Um, also, the index methodologies often result in different sector weightings, so I think it's perfectly reasonable to own more than one dividend-oriented ETF to sort of round out your exposure. Um, and as for how these ETFs have done so far this year, most are holding up better than the overall market. Still down, but the declines are mostly in the single digits. 
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.